This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Is it true that there's no such thing as neutral? In 2023, companies have a lot to consider. How do they achieve success and attract investors and decide on how to center their own investments while making a difference in the world? Is the bottom line the only consideration or even the most important one? Can a company's value and its values align? In today's corporate climate, leaders answering these questions and making decisions have to do a lot more than learn the meaning of ESG and SRI if they want to satisfy informed shareholders and government policies that can vary from state to state or even city to city. Mission has become not just an aspiration, but an action plan. So what is the plan for navigating all these sometimes conflicting issues with knowledge and nuance? Many have turned to this month's Equal Time guest as a guide. Jonas Crone is Chief Advocacy Officer for Trillium Asset Management, which for 40 years has had a goal of what it calls responsible investing toward, quote, a global sustainable economy, a just society, and a better world, unquote. He is responsible for leading and coordinating Trillium's work to engage companies on their environmental and social performance. He currently serves on the board of USCIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment. He has also been an environmental attorney and public defender. Welcome to Equal Time, Jonas Crow. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. To start, can you please tell our listeners about your work and client base? I know that some people, I believe, would find the idea of investing with anything other than the bottom line in mind to be a, a surprising concept. Sure. Um, well, thanks for thanks for that question. So, Trillium Asset Management um, has actually been around for forty years. We're in our fortieth year now, um, and ever since inception, uh, we have always integrated environmental, social, and governance factors into the investment process. Um, and so, for us, what that means is thinking about the long term and thinking about the ways in which companies uh, impact the environment, impact society, um, and similarly, how those uh, those same topics, environmental issues, social issues, impact the company and create uh, risks and opportunities for those companies. And we have found that that is a, a sound investment approach and has been part of, of what we've done for 40 years. The other part of what we do, and uh, and I think what we're probably here to talk about a little bit more today, is um, the fact that uh, after we engage or invest in a company, we also will be engaging those companies on environmental, social, and governance factors. So looking for opportunities where they can make improvements to climate change policy, for example, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, for example, both from a point of view of the ways in which those issues impact the companies. Uh, bottom line, 
uh, impact them financially, but also how those companies impact society and the environment more broadly. And so for us, our clients come to us knowing that that's what we do and, and uh, the expertise that we have developed in that area over time. And we have a variety of different clients. We, uh, we have a couple of mutual funds that are available to retail individuals. We uh, also manage uh, individual uh, portfolios privately. Um, and then we also are, uh, have a presence in the institutional community. So whether that's through financial advisors or with um, uh, uh, individual institutions themselves through their advisors. Um, so that's sort of, I guess, at a thumb, thumb level sketch uh, what Trillium does. You've talked a bit about how you actually engage with companies. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Will you engage on different issues and DEI concerns? And also, if you could work your way through the thicket of some of these initials that we use, ESG, SRI, DEI, and talk about that and how you engage companies with that. Sure. Yes, there is a real alphabet soup <laughs> uh, out in the world right now. Um, so there are terms like ESG, which stands for environmental, social and governance factors, which you know really is it's just more data. It is another set of data points um, in addition to what folks might think of as traditional financial data points that can be pulled in and integrated into the investment process. Um, SRI uh, stands for uh, socially responsible investing or sustainable and responsible investing to some folks. Uh, CSR is corporate social responsibility. Um, but, you know, once you sort of cut through all of the jargon and the, uh, the alphabet soup, uh, what it really comes down to is uh, thinking about how a company performs over the long term and what role it plays in society and what role it plays in um, ecosystems and the environment. And so for us, engagement with companies can look, it can look like a lot of different things. And there's sort of different tools that we have as shareholders to be able to engage companies. Uh, one of the basic tools is just actually uh, calling the company up. Uh, representatives of the company uh, or writing them a letter and having a conversation and a dialogue, sharing with them our perspectives, sharing with them information, research um, that could help inform uh, their policies and practices and uh, approach to these issues. Um, we can do that individually, or sometimes we can talk to another investor and say, would you like to go do this together with us? And so we can do it uh, in, a, in more of a group effort. Um, Beyond speaking to share uh, to companies, we also have tools like uh, what are called shareholder proposals. So um, without getting into sort of the technicalities of it, basically every year a company has an annual meeting where they report out on what they've done and gather the investors to vote on the board of directors and executive comp uh, compensation, those sorts of things. Um, investors have an opportunity to put a question, uh, a recommendation, a proposal uh, in front of shareholders uh, to be voted on at that meeting. And as a shareholder in a company, we have uh, under certain conditions a right to make one of those proposals. And so we will, We'll file somewhere around 20 of those shareholder proposals a year with companies on any number of different environmental or social uh, or governance related issues. Uh, one thing that uh, all shareholders have, anybody that holds a share in a company uh, that has voting rights, is the ability to vote 
at the meeting. And that's an important form of communication uh, with a company. So whether that's uh, voting on the board of directors, whether that's voting on executive compensation or voting on shareholder proposals, that's a very important channel uh, for investors of all stripes to convey their uh, opinions uh, to the company. Um, and those are sort of the, the primary tools. There are other ways to engage companies uh, in a public fashion. You know, we can speak out in public or educate other investors, um, but that's that's the general lay of the land. Um, and for us, you know, we we focus on topics like climate change, um, like uh, gender, racial, um, LGBT. Um, diversity uh, at the board level, um, at the senior executive level, and at the workforce level. Um, you know, we also engage companies on topics like toxic chemicals and products, or if they are, say, a food company and um, are responsible for agricultural supply chains, how pesticides uh, are used in those supply chains, or how farm workers are treated in those supply chains. But then also we will look not only at those environmental social issues, but also corporate governance uh, related topics. So, for example, if a company has the CEO and the chairman of the board being the same person, uh, we consider that not to be best governance. And so we might encourage a company to separate out those two roles, for example. It's interesting because I don't think in times well in the past that folks really thought as much about shareholders, investors, folks coming to meetings and demanding answers. But then we have seen in recent years, those scenes play out and companies being called to account. It's not really a new idea, but it hasn't always been this way. Could you talk a little bit about the history of people really getting more involved in what companies are doing and how they're doing it? Sure. Actually, the history of this is is fascinating and there is sort of the recent history but if you go far enough back if you go back into sort of the mid 20th century some of the first examples of this were shareholders that went to greyhound bus, bus company and pushed the greyhound bus company to desegregate its buses you know that was sort of one of the most early examples of shareholders identifying an important social issue um, that a company should be behaving differently on and really directly going to the company on that point. You saw another uh, sort of wave of it around the Vietnam War, and there was a lot of concern about um, companies producing uh, weapons like napalm and how those were being used in the Vietnam War. A little bit later, uh, sort of late 70s and early into in the early 80s, there was the South Africa divestment movement. And a lot of attention was paid towards um, you know, divesting from South Africa or divesting from companies that business in South Africa. But a lot of the engagement there, um, and also actually at the same time, some similar engagements related to Northern Ireland had to do with how to do business uh, in these um, places and what would be a responsible way to, to do business. But then uh, starting in the, the later 80s and the 90s and then into the aughts, uh, the, the early 21st century, we started seeing more and more investors really understanding, one, the value of environmental and social information from an investment process. And so they started asking companies for more information. You know, can you tell us what your carbon footprint is? Can we tell you, you know, can you, we know you collect for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission diversity data across 
your uh, workforce? Can we start seeing that data? And so that's generated a set of questions around disclosure and, and, and information. But at the same time, we started seeing increasing concerns around climate change and the impact that businesses had, uh, the important role that businesses had on whether we were going to be able to address uh, climate change. Uh, but then we also saw in the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, um, the, the devastating impacts that business can have on communities and, uh, and and individuals around the country. And shareholders saw, I think in many cases, the role that they had to play in holding companies to account. And increasingly we started seeing maybe um, a less effective um, governance coming out of Washington where public policy was getting stuck um, in uh, gridlock in Washington, D.C., and a recognition that even if there was that gridlock, there was still power that the companies and power that investors had to address these issues. And that with that came a responsibility to actually make efforts <laughs> to getting companies to take responsibility for diversity, equity, inclusion, for example, particularly uh, after the racial reckoning in the summer of 2020, we saw an enormous amount of interest at that point in not only the workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, but we also saw concerns about the way that these companies would impact racial justice in communities. The other thing I would just add in is that I talked a little bit earlier about the, the increased demands for information from companies. As that information started coming out more and more, we saw more and more scholarship happening about the relationship between, say, a social issue and company performance. And we started seeing, for example, starting in about 2010, 2011, um, studies coming out showing that, that boards of directors, that when a company had a board of directors that had more women on it, that was more gender diverse, that that company actually had better financial performance. And so, Trillium, for example, uh, with that information, with those studies, uh, with that evidence in hand, um, started engaging companies that had predominantly male boards, talking to them not only about the financial benefits of diversifying the board from a gender point of view, but also the social good that comes from that and the way in which the company can begin to help advance uh, women's equality in society and provide um, representation of women in leadership. And so those two really started going hand in hand, both the, the corporate value point of view, but also the social values point of view. And so, you know, for Trillium, for example, in that time period, we engaged um, dozens of companies that had predominantly male boards um, and got them to make commitments to diversify their boards and and actually follow through on that and started bringing one two three uh even four women onto the board of directors um, and that's continued to grow and expand into gender related i mean uh, 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 race and ethnicity related topics um but that you know sort of i think in a covers in some ways you know the scope of what this field has looked like for decades. So in other words, uh, as you mentioned before, the value of a company and its values are not mutually exclusive or they don't have to be. No, you know, and, and I think, you know, we've seen companies talk about this more and more, um, you know, they're into, in, 
actually in 2019, there was actually a group of, of large companies, very well-known companies talking about stakeholder capitalism. And I think it's certainly good to take that statement with a, a very large grain of salt, but it at least showed that, um, that there was a recognition that, you know, companies can be thinking about, they can chew gum and, you know, and walk at the same time. They can be thinking about these, you know, quote, pure financial issues and also be thinking about social impact. And companies talk about this all the time, not only in terms of issues like, you know, talking about the importance of diversity or talking about their commitment to addressing climate change, but in other ways that I think people might feel a little bit more familiar with going back in time. Lots of companies, for example, have programs in place to um, to support the needs of veterans in our communities. And that's an important value that they want to stand by, that veterans are, you know, have a special role in our society. They have, you know, given uh, life and limb in many cases for our democracy and for um, our way of life. And that's an important value to the company to support our veterans. And that's another example of, of how this plays out. Other ways uh, in which this plays out, and, and there's actually a great example of this um, uh, a few years ago where a uh, investor stood up in front of a company and said, um, you know, everything you should do should be done because it is, you know, it is incredibly pr uh, uh, productive or um, profitable for us uh, as shareholders. And the investor or the, the CEO of this company stood up in front of all the shareholders and said, listen, we develop some of our products to be able to be used by uh, blind people or deaf people or other folks that have physical um, constraints. And that is, and we do that not because it is profitable for us to do it, but because it is the right thing to do. These are the, you know, these are important members of our community. They uh, should have access to our products and we're going to make sure that they do. So I think, you know, this is a pretty well-trod ground, uh, both in corporate, you know, uh, rhetoric, but also in corporate practice. At the same time, you mentioned something called, when we talked before, concessionary returns. And what does that mean? So um, the notion of concessionary returns is that sometimes people will say, okay, I will make an investment. Um, but I actually think I might not make as much money as I could if I made another mm. investment, even on you know all other things being uh, equal. And I think why concessionary returns are 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 useful to think about these days is uh, is is that they are actually becoming more popular. Um, so uh, one of the organizations, uh, so I sit on the board of USF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investing, and um, uh, USCIF is uh, it's a membership association, and, and every two years, USCIF does what they call a trends report, and they look at trends in the financial services industry related to environmental, social issues, sustainability. And one of the things that they identified in their most recent uh, trends report that just came out in, in December 2022 is the growth in uh, what is sometimes called community investing, uh, which not always, but in many cases, acknowledges a concessionary return. They are saying, you know, we are creating a vehicle for you to invest in uh, in a community or a particular community. And this isn't charity. This isn't a grant. 
but this also isn't necessarily going to be comparable to the quote pure financial vehicle that you would see on the other side. It sits somewhere in between. And so there is a, a very real opportunity for concessionary returns. That 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 subset of investments have actually been growing um, over the last uh, at least last two years, if not uh, longer. And I think it suggests that there is an appetite in, amongst at least some investors and a growing group of investors uh, for concessionary returns and understanding that there are lots of different ways to invest uh, with different goals, with different time horizons, with different expectations, and that we shouldn't necessarily just sort of lump everything into the profit maximization bucket. So... We know that there have been some challenges to this kind of investing, particularly coming from state and city regulations and rules. And some have been public, such as the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, objecting to Disney's practices when it comes around DEI, gender, and elsewhere. How does that complicate your mission? And what are some strategies as you advise clients in this space? So... um well, for Trillium and our clients, uh, well, actually, let me take a, a step back. So there are there's sort of two things that are going on right now in the, quote, anti-woke or anti-ESG uh, uh, efforts that are out there. And, and, and yes, Florida is, is, is one example of that. Um, you know, there's some other states, uh, Arizona and Indiana, uh, Mississippi and Missouri and Nebraska, New Hampshire, uh, Ohio, uh, a few other places as well, uh, where you're seeing this legislation. And some of it is focused directly on the companies, sort of in this anti-woke uh, uh, genre of, you know, questioning whether companies should have, a, you know, say a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion program, or whether a company should have a climate change target. And then there's sort of another group of uh uh, bills that are focused on investing and focused on where the, say, the public pension plan of one of these states should be investing. And um, uh, sort of leaving aside the first, uh, although those do create, um, I think, challenges for investors because most of these large companies, uh, many of these large companies, see the value in having these diversity programs or having these climate change programs uh, looking at ESG. And, and actually, you know, we've seen a lot of companies really um, kind of dismiss those efforts uh, uh, pretty robustly. Uh, you know, the CEO of, of, uh, of one company recently, a large, I guess, large beverage company, I'll say, um, basically came to reach the point of saying, call it whatever you want, but we know this makes sense for us as a business. Uh, and we are going to keep doing that, you know, that, that they understand that, you know, the company's business strategy is not only a matter of financial implications, but that it is tied up in society and, and the prosperity of society and that you can't separate those two things out and that, um, uh, you know, these efforts uh, at, at uh, quote, you know, anti-ESG are going to, to fall flat at a company like his. On the investment side, you know, I guess 
Trillium's clients know that Trillium has been doing this for 40 years and has um, always talked about investing, uh, integrating ESG factors into the investment process and has always engaged companies. So, uh, you know, they know what they're getting and they know what they want and they know what they're looking for. I think there's a, a slightly different question for that's not really relevant for Trillium, but is for, you know, is, is the question that's getting the large asset managers caught up, the, the large asset managers that are looking to manage the public employee pension plans um, in this regard. And, um, <laughs> you know, one of the big targets for that really has been Larry Fink. And somewhere in the last week or two, I should say Larry Fink is the uh, CEO of BlackRock, which is a $10 trillion asset management firm, uh, much larger than the uh, about $6 billion in assets under advisement that the Trillium represents. Uh, but he made a point uh, in the last couple of weeks that um, anti-ESG uh, states have uh, pulled about $4 billion um, from BlackRock, uh, BlackRock management at this point. At the exact same time, uh, almost $400 billion has come in um, with about $230 billion of that coming in uh, from the United States. And so he sort of made the point, $4 billion going out, $230 billion coming in, what you know from a business point of view it's pretty clear how the math works on that was was his point so i think you know while there's certainly a lot of um smoke <laughs> uh around these state level efforts it's not really clear that there's very much fire yeah and even governor DeSantis, i think they came to an agreement about with with Disney, uh, because at a certain point, some of it is about the politics, and then they kind of make an agreement. So, um. <laughs> sure. And I think, you know, like even, you know, in that case, you know, I think some of these same companies that that uh, the governor was criticizing have actually been, uh, you know, sponsors of his inauguration. So, yes, I saw that. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think to some degree, there's a certain unwillingness to really uh, to, to really you know, cut the, cut the ties. So we've seen, uh, Jonas, the growth of organizations such as Don't Ban Equality, which is a coalition of companies signing on to state their support for abortion and reproductive rights. And you have the leadership, uh, the leadership now project, which speaks to issues related to democracy, the economy and more. Is this a trend? Do you think for the future, in your opinion, on issues that should or can be considered for both right and left-leaning organizations? Well, I think, you know, one of the things, one of the myths that I think uh, was prevalent in the business community for generations was that somehow business was removed from society, that, uh, that you could draw a line between those two. And maybe, you know, and that, that, that companies should be neutral. The, the, I think the classic line was the Michael Jordan line, you know, that even Republicans buy sneakers. Um, and I think over time, we've really come to understand that, you know, business is, is, is 
entwined in our society, that business is entwined in, in ecosystems uh, and ecosystem impacts, and that there is a certain shared prosperity that um, is that we all need to be aware of. And similarly, you know, there's, there could be shared downside. And th what that means is, is that for companies, there really is no such thing as neutral. Um, if you're neutral, if you quote are neutral, really all you're saying is, well, I'm okay with the status quo and I'm okay with the existing dynamics, whether those be you know economics or financial or political dynamics, which is actually having an opinion, <laughs> which is actually having a point of view about the way society should go and the way that our environment should go. You may call it neutral, but it isn't really because all companies have an impact one way or the other. It's just a matter of whether they want to be intentional about what the impact is and whether they want to be purposeful about their impact. And so over you know, recently, what we've started to see is that you know, the companies are becoming more and more aware of this, whether they want to or not. Sometimes they are forward leaning and they see that, the, that there's that relationship there and they are proactive about it. And sometimes uh, events catch up with them and demonstrate to leadership at those companies, whether they like it or not, that they have an impact on society and society has an impact on them and that they need to be more thoughtful about it, more strategic and more purposeful. And so more companies are talking about what their mission is, what they are trying to do to, you know, to be productive members of society and then how they're going to design their businesses to, to do that. That's an interesting point. I mean, companies can't stand still no more than society can. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, like I can't emphasize this point enough. Every, every investor has an impact. Every business has an impact. Every citizen has an impact. Like, you know, we, we, we are not islands. We all, you know, interact with each other in some capacity or another. The question is, do you want that? Are you going to be purposeful about that impact? Or are you going to just kind of throw up your hands and say, well, it is what it is. And I am going to put myself at the mercy of other forces and other people that are being intentional. Because that's kind of, you know, the rough alternative is that, you know, you're not actually going to be thoughtful and mindful about what your impacts are, and you're going to be in a reactive mode constantly. Well, Jonas, I want to ask you a question that I asked to all of Equal Time guests, and that is, what question have I not asked that I should have because you have something important to say on the topic? And I can't ask everything, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that we haven't talked about here too much is it, where is the, the anti-ESG rhetoric heading? Um, you know, can we sort of look in the crystal ball a little bit and say, you know, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, where does uh, all of this anti-ESG rhetoric go? And I think it's pretty clear that it's a dead end argument. Um, and I think I think for a couple of reasons, I think one is is that ESG um, as an approach to investing as a set of data inputs, um, that train has left the station. There is just so much already invested in the approach 
there is already so much data out there that is being analyzed and found to be useful um, that I think the the weight and momentum behind that um, is uh, is incredibly powerful. Second is that I think time and time again, people have indicated that they want companies actually to take responsibility for their impacts on society. You know, growing numbers of com- of, of people think that cli- you know companies should have climate change targets. You know, growing numbers of companies think that companies should um, be thinking about and considering diversity, equity, inclusion. And that number is only growing, particularly with, as younger generations um, uh, come of age and start investing themselves and and, uh, and and going out and seeking jobs from these companies. And I think the, the weight of, of that attitude is also going to be a death knell for the anti-ESG movement. I think largely this is a this is a, a reactive effort to keep the horse that has already run out of the barn at this point. So I think you know while you know it's important to to um, to to keep an eye on on this, and I think it's important for investors of all stripes to explain what they're doing and to uh, be sure to participate in the public conversation around these anti-ESG efforts. Um, I think over the long term, um, it's uh, it's a dead end. That was a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I also would say to add on to that, with the changing face of America, in order to take advantage of the people who are out there, the talent, the brain power, the opportunities, the new companies that are springing up, you really will fall behind. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think, you know, um, you know, the today's you know, twenty-somethings as they come into the workforce have a whole different set of expectations than their parents or their grandparents did, and uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, companies that don't take that into don't take that seriously are going to be left behind. Thank you again, Jonas Crown, for appearing on Equal Time. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. So, what's keeping me up at night? The fact that with progress will always come pushback was made quite clear during the country's recent celebration of the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's as though the person honored was a sanitized version of the activist who fought and died for his commitment to social, political, and economic justice. A paper in Maine that had warned against protest marches in the 60s this year honored King by reprinting his famous speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, editing out all the portions that spoke of poverty and struggle. It did not acknowledge his calls on America to fulfill its promises to every citizen. Maybe America, its schools and teachers and leaders will one day remember the real Martin Luther King, moving us at last toward making his dream a reality. I write about this and more in my recent roll call columns. Check them out. So listeners, what's keeping you up? What questions do you have, especially about issues of policy and politics seen through a lens of social justice? Tweet me at mcurtisnc3. I want to thank the Fiscal Note Executive Institute for their partnership and support of today's programming. They provide a community for senior executives of global companies across industries to come together to discuss top issues affecting organizations, 
including diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and accessibility. To learn more about their efforts, visit executiveinstitute.fiscalnote.com. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.